1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we will take the first nine verses today. Today is on the principles of marriage, or the principles of marriage and celibacy is the topic today. And we're going to read all nine verses, and then we will go through verse by verse so you can follow along. So if you would, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And to come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a consensus, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and then another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows... It is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So when we look at these nine verses today, as we continue verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians... Let me remind you, if you haven't been following along or just coming new into the book here, if you remember the very, we're seeing a new section of the first Corinthians. The first section was in chapter one, and it was in just those first few verses of chapter one, one through nine, where we saw the introduction of the Corinthians, those believers in Corinth, and the greetings to the saints of Corinth. So we're, the book was written to the saints in the church in Corinth, and this is what all the, the book, the letter is all about, is to speak to them that what's going on in that church. Then right after verse 9 of chapter 1, we picked up in another section, a new section, verses 10 of chapter 1, all the way through to the end of chapter 6, we saw a series of problems within the Corinthian church, and we saw a a few. One was a social immorality. They were there was division within the church. They weren't getting along. Their personalities weren't uh, were not jiggy. They were just constantly looking at each other and kind of find fault. And there was just division going on because they want what they wanted when they wanted it. And if you didn't line up with what they wanted, then they just started. There was division that took place. But that's not how it was. We're supposed to stay focused on and keep our eyes on Jesus. Not what we want, but what Jesus wants and what pleases him. That's what causes uh, unity within the body. 
But then he continued on in, the, in those chapters, and we saw sexual immorality was another problem within that church. Sin in the body is, should not be, and what was happening is in that body, there was, a, there was a guy who was actually having a sexual relationship with his father's wife, and there was a wink, wink, wink within the church going, oh, we know this is going on, but we're not saying anything. We're just going to let it go on. It doesn't affect me. No, it does affect the body we learned. That sin within the camp can cause a problem within the church, and it cannot happen. You can't just let it pass. And then we saw on the third problem, which was an ethical immorality. And because of the fact that they allowed the world come into the church and affect the church versus the church going out in the community and affect the community, what was happening was there was brothers were going against brothers in lawsuits and suing each other because they wanted what they wanted. They were coveted um, hearts. They wanted what they wanted, and they were going to sue even my brother to get it. That should never happen. Civil lawsuits should not happen within the body of Christ between brothers and sisters. It should not happen. It does not please the Lord. And then we saw last week at the end of chapter 6, Paul says, glorify God in your body. That is a great foundation for you and I, we saw. That if we would just, whatever we do with this body, just do it to glorify God. It's not to glorify yourself and it's not to glorify anyone else, but to glorify God. And when you do that, it keeps you and I in check in our emotions and our feelings and our actions in and out of side the church. And it'll address many of these questions and problems that we see in the Corinthian church. And Paul today starts a new section of his letter, and he actually starts addressing the problems. Up in the beginning, it was just, it's just dealing with some foundational stuff. Now, he, we will see he's actually going to answer the problems or answer the questions that were in the letter that the Corinthian church sent to him. Now, we'll see here in chapter 7, he addresses marriage and singleness. That must have been a question. It was a question, and he's going to answer it. And then we see Christian liberty was a question in chapters 8 through 10, and he's going to answer it. Then we're going to see in chapter 11, church conduct. And how certain things should be taking place within the church, or should not be taken in the church. And he's going to answer that question. Then in chapters 12 through 14, he's going to address spiritual gifts, what it is, what they are, what they're for, why is the purpose. And he's going to go through and answer their questions regarding spiritual gifts. Then he's going to touch on chapter 15. It's all about resurrection, doctrinal stuff. And that's going to be addressed. They obviously had questions about the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection, and when we're going to go to heaven. All these things are going to be answered in chapter 15. And then finally in chapter 16, they had, had questions regarding giving and offering and, and tithes and offering, those things of what we're supposed to do as a commandment. And there, he's going to address that question with a very specific answers for all of us to learn and for them to learn then. But here in chapter 7, marriage and singleness, and today we're going to see just the first part, marriage and celibacy, verses 1 through 9, and we're going to then touch on divorce, verses 10 through 24, singleness, we're going to touch on that in verses 25 through 38, and then we'll touch on remarriage on verses 39 
and 40. So there's four sections to that, but we will touch all of that through these principles on around marriage, both being before you get married, during marriage, after marriage, or can you remarry? All of those things we, we uh, Lord willing, will be addressing over the next uh, three weeks. But here we see Paul starts with the very first principle that we must understand, and that is sexual relations within a marriage called purity and how you are to live a life of purity before you get married but also when you're married god wants very clearly to us to live a pure pure life a purity in our lives because that pleases him and he says right here in the very beginning of verse one now concerning the things which you wrote to me so now he's addressing the questions that were presented by the Corinthian church. Now, we don't have the letter from the Corinthian church, so we don't know exactly word for word what was written to him. All we know is as we go through the rest of, of the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see him answer the questions that were in the letter. So that's all that matters to us, right? We just want to know the answers to some of these things. We don't really matter what word for word what the letter said. We just want to know what he's going to give the answers to those questions. Just like the Corinthian church. We gave you a letter. They just want, they don't want the letter back. They want the letter with the answers back, right? Because we want to know how we're supposed to live as a Christian in this world. Back in those days, but it also applies, his word applies to us today. So he says right there, concerning these things, he starts off by addressing the first one. He says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, some are like, what? What is he saying here? This is crazy. What do you mean you can't touch a What that means in the original language that when he says, do not touch a woman, means you are not to have a sexual relationship with that woman. It is, not, it is good to stay, to, to not to touch a woman. It's not good to do it outside of how God uh, says it should be. So he's basically saying it is good to be single. It is good to be celibate. This is a good thing. This is not a bad thing. This is a good thing for you to understand. A single state of where God has you is not, should not be looked down upon. In so many cultures, even back in the Jewish culture at the time, if you were not married as a male by age 20, they thought you were in sin. They thought something was wrong with you. That was not a good thing if you weren't married by 20. And so many times women have this pressure of society back in those days and even today. If you're not married by some, some age, for some reason, people start going, is there something wrong with her? Is there something wrong with him? Is there something not right? You, people start questioning versus... Paul is saying very clearly to him, it is good. It is good to be single. It's not, nothing wrong to be, to, 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 to be single. And, and, and it's nothing wrong with you to be stay celibate and not touch a woman in that state of being single. So why did the Corinthian Christians suggest complete celibacy? Which is what is met here by the, the, where he says, you know, it is not good for, for a man to touch a woman. It's probably because it figured that because we just got done writing about the sexual immorality and the problem that was happening within the church and in society around outside the church, that somehow 
you know, maybe it's better and more spiritual if we just, you know, just be celibate in outside of marriage and inside of marriage. And just, we'll just keep it that way. But Paul is saying, no, that's not how it works. That's not, that's not what God has designed. That's not how it's supposed to be. You're not going to be more pure uh, inside a marriage, abstaining from sex altogether in the marriage. That is not what's happening. And so it was a question, as we will see him rolling this out, that it appears that there was married couples who were saying, we're not going to have a sexual relationship in the marriage. We're just going to devote and just constantly say, focus on the Lord, and we're just going to you know, neglect the needs of each other within that marriage. And he's like, no. Because we will find out that you're going to cause some challenges if you have that mindset. He says right there in verse 2, Nevertheless, because of your sexual immorality. So here he is. He's kind of addressing it from a single state perspective. You single people. He says, guys, don't touch that guy. Don't touch that woman in a single state. But he says in verse 2, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, because of fornication, because of the, the risk that you put yourself on at some point in being single, in your drive, that sexual drive that's inside that God gave you, it's let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So in danger of sexual immorality and the danger of the, the culture that seems to be influencing you here in Corinth, and in the, in the sexual influence of the culture of this day, it is probably appropriate for you to have a husband and for you to have a, a wife so that you do not fall into sexual immorality. Now, Paul is not commanding that these Christians must get married. But if you are going to get married, Notice that he says, let each man have his own wife. Didn't say a man or a, woman, a man to have another man or a woman to have another woman. So homosexuality is out. For those teachings that are going on in the churches today, that's out. That scripture is very clear. But also let each woman have her own husband. But it also takes away those churches that are teaching that polygamy or having multiple wives is okay. No, the scripture is very clear. Each man is to have his own one wife, and each woman is to have one husband. That is very clear in the scripture. There's no gray area in that. So any other teaching you hear that says it's okay, homosexuality, and you can still be a Christian and live that, that habitual lifestyle or, or have polygamy and have multiple wives, that is false teaching, and you're not to touch it. Because it's very clear in the scripture here, and Paul makes it very clear for us. Now, Paul is not saying here that sex is the only reason for marriage or it's the most important reason to get married or have for, for marriage. Paul simply is answering their specific question that he, they had for him and, and, and he's not giving a full theological uh, seminary teaching on marriage. You can go back in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. He addresses it much more thorough on the subject of marriage. And he also addresses it in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. So that's where you can go back later today and you have your little tea and coffee and sit back and read the rest of, the, of what Paul teaching on marriage. But what we do know within what we see today and some of the other things you should understand is that marriage is good as well as being single. 
Purity, we see in verse 2, is what God expects within the marriage. Also, as a single state, you should have purity in your life. Two, we know uh, procreation or to have children was important or what God had asked to do when you do get married. We see that in Genesis 1.28. We know it's marriage is to bring pleasure. We see that in Hebrews. We also see partnership is also what comes when you get married. A partnership coming alongside two people plowing together the things to do, the things what God's called you to do for the kingdom while he has you on this earth before he takes you home. So this partnership, we also see that in Genesis 2.24. And also as marriage, we see a picture, Ephesians 5.23. A marriage is a picture of the church. That Christ is over the family, he's over the church, and that there's order and authority and there's, and there's, there's decency as how God has ordered, how the church is to run, but also how the family unit is to work. And that the, he puts responsibility on the husband to be over the family spiritually and, to may, and will take full responsibility and accountability of what happens within that family. So we see that marriage is a very, very good thing because God ordained the institution of marriage. So that, light, that, that thinking that's out there in today, back in those days and today, where it says, oh, I'm never going to get married. What's the value in getting married? Why would I take the risk to get married? You know, what's the benefit to me to get married? That's what you hear in this world of culture today. But God ordained that in Genesis 2, verses 18 through 24. And then even the first part, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. He, God took part of, of Adam's side. We don't know what part he took from his side, but he took a part of his side and created Eve. To come alongside him, to be compatible, comparable, to, to work to, side by side, to go out and do what God's called them to do as a married couple. And men, remember, ladies, remember, Proverbs 18.22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. It's a good, it's right. But then Paul moves on in verse 3, and he gives us another principle, a principle of mutual sexual responsibility within the marriage. He says, let the husband render to give, to provide to his wife the affection due her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. So we see Paul says to you, wait a minute, you, you guys in the marriage here, what, what do you mean you're going to hold the sexual relationship from your spouse in that marriage? What do you mean you're going to do that? No, no, it says you need to render to your wife and to your husband the affection due him and her. This is not about you. It's not about what you want to do and to hold or withhold it. Holding affection from your wife is not right, guys. Don't do it. You owe, it's like I owe you instead of you owe me. You should be looking to give and to, to serve her and to provide that and render to her that affection that is due her. You can't justify why you're holding back affection from her. I'm not having a sexual relationship with you. 
I'm not going to show you kindness and love and gentleness. I, I got things to do and places to go and things to do. I don't want to be bothered by all this. No, we're supposed to. Affection that is due her is such an important phrase here that Paul says. Because it's supposed to be applied to every Christian marriage. It shows that every wife has affection due her. If Paul doesn't think only that a young and pretty and submissive wives are due affection, but every wife is due affection because she is a wife of a Christian man. And Paul emphasized what the woman needs. Not only needs a sexual relationship with you, man, but the affection due her. If a husband is having a sexual relationship with his wife, but without true affection to her, not in a loving way, not in a kind way, not in a gentle way, he's not giving his wife what she is due. But it also reminds us as a couple there's a times in your life where there's something that might happen within during your time of marriage where someone, one or the other, cannot physically or other reasons give that sexual need to their spouse to complete that sexual relationship within that marriage. But that does not mean you're still not to show affection or to love that in that relationship to fulfill God's purposes for those commandments. And he says there at the end of verse 3, on the same idea is also the wife to her husband. The wife is not to withhold marital, within the marriage, a sexual affection for her husband. Paul strongly puts forth the idea that there is a mutual sexual responsibility in the marriage. The husband has obligations to the wife, and the wife has obligations to her husband in regards to that area of their, of their marriage. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5 says, we see in those verses that we're, we're not to uh, put ourselves first. But we are to put our spouse's needs over ours, regardless of how we feel. And in verse 4, we see Paul then says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, I know these verses can sometimes spin you guys up or spin women up. And what do you mean I don't have authority? I have authority over my body. I have my rights. You know, you hear it all the time on the news these days. But understand why Paul is saying this. In fact, these obligations are so concrete that it could be, it could be said that the wife's body does not belong to herself, but her husband, the same principle is true, obviously, for the husband's body in regards to his wife. Now, this does not justify in any form or fashion for the husband to abuse the wife or the wife to abuse the husband. 
to lord over her or to lord over him. That is not happening in, the, in a marriage, a Christian marriage. It's not supposed to happen. Jesus did not lord over. We're to have that same characteristic. We're not to lord over our spouse. But Paul's point is that we are having this, this binding obligation to serve our partner with physical affection. Now imagine this incredible obligation, this incredible opportunity that God is going to take you, select out of billions of people on this earth, and God has chosen one person to come and to, to meet those sexual needs that God has given you called a sex drive and do that in purity and in goodness within that marriage. <laughs> I know some of you head spinning right now. I know if someone's listening to this later on on the radio, their heads are spinning in their heads. What do you mean? Only one woman can fulfill my sexual needs? If you're thinking that, it's because you've allowed yourself to go outside of the, the boundaries of what God has designed for you. You're living like the world. You're not living in a pure life of how God wants you to live. You're thinking the way the world thinks. You're living based on lust of the flesh. But understand how God designed it. You're to live a pure life as a single. You are wait to marry a godly woman or a godly man who is also pure. This is the ideal, of course. I understand that. And that you live together until the Lord takes you home. And there is no, there's no defiling. There's nothing goes on outside of another sexual relationship except that one spouse that God has given you. Now, that doesn't mean there's condemnation and there's no judgment, all the stuff. That if you've been remarried or have been divorced or remarried, we'll get into all of those. Because there's grace and there's, God is, God is, God is grace, man. And by God's mercy, he's going to restore and bring that marriage and heal that marriage or bring you and give you an opportunity to have another healthy relationship with a man or a woman. And we'll get into divorce. We'll get into remarriage. We'll get into all those things. But right now, in this context of what he's saying here, this is what God has. You don't have the authority. I know in my own, my own life, I, I want to please my wife. So, so if I'm going to, even as simple as if I'm going to wear a cologne is the cologne to please me or please any other woman? No, it should be only wear a cologne that's going to please my wife. Because it really doesn't matter to anyone else what they think. Are you with me? If I get a haircut, I'm going to ask her, is my hair, how did, you, did it turn out okay? Or what do I need to tell my barber next time? Too long, too short? What pleases you? Now, can you imagine if I just wanted to focus on myself and said, oh, I just don't feel like it today when I wake up. I think I'm going to have my hair perm. Not much there to perm, I assure you. I feel like I'm going to go two-tone color because I just don't like the way my hair looks today. I'm just going to go get it colored. I think I'm just going to go bald. I'll just sh shave it now because it's on its way there now. All emotions. If I sat there, how, what would my, not even care what my wife, my, my spouse even thinks about? I think I'm going to start dressing like I'm a teenager again. 
those skinny jeans. I've already been threatened by my daughter, and <laughs> I would never do that. But you imagine if I'd gone a little haywire and went emotion, wanted to act and do some things that didn't please my wife. Is that? No. My body, what I do is I need to please my wife. That's all that matters. Not myself, not anybody else. That's what he's saying here. Remember, we don't even own our own bodies, do we? We just read last week in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, that God purchased us. What does God say about us doing what we're doing with our bodies? Have you even asked him before you went out and got permanently changed? Did you even ask him if that pleases him? Because that's ultimately, that's the question as a couple should be asking. You might be jiggy with it. She might be jiggy with it. But all of a sudden you go to God and you ask God, are you jiggy with it? And he says to you, no. Who has authority over you and your body? But my spouse says, it's, your spouse might be wrong. What does God say? He purchased your body. What is going to please him as he dwells within that temple. Now in verse 5, he, Paul steps up another notch here on this conversation. It doesn't get easier. In verse 5, he says, Do not deprive, do not def defraud one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of, the, of your lack of self-control. See, some in the Corinthian church, these couples, they were, they were, they were saying, I'm not having a, a sexual relationship with you, their husband or wife. I'm, I'm, I'm going to abstain. I'm just going to, I got things to do. I got really busy for the things of God. I'm really, really focused on the Lord, and, and we're not having a sexual relationship. Hello? It says right here, Paul says, do not deprive one another except under certain principles, ex exceptions, that you, except with consent for a time. It's okay that you cannot have a sexual relationship with your spouse, but it's got to be mutually agreed upon first. You don't, you don't make that decision and say, you're going to have to live with it, bro. You have to live with it, woman, and you're just going to have to come along with what I want because that's my, that's my decision. No, no, no. Paul says, do not deprive except under consent a mutual consent there for a time. That means you had to determine, okay, you, you're going to focus. I, obviously, you're going to be focusing, and it's a spiritual reason why it says here, because you're going to be fasting and praying during this period of time, and you want to stay very focused on the Lord. But I think this is really encouraging for many. That there is a time frame on this. This is not for the rest of your marriage. This is only long enough for fasting and prayer. Now, I don't know how many of you can fast and pray for 40 days. Hello? There's some encouragement. Okay, she can. Okay, I know she could probably fast. I think I've seen her fast and pray up to three days. That's about as long as she can make it. I can hold on there for three days. He can, he, he's, I've never seen him go over a day of fasting and praying. 
So she has encouraged the fact that he's not going to go out there and stray for, you know, in the garage and working and tinkering on his car for the next few days. But there is a time, there's mutual consent, because he says here there's a concern if, there, if that's not done according to the way it should be done, and that is under mutual understanding between the two, an agreement, not forcing the other one to agree, but also to the fact that there is a, there's a, a short period, concentrated time of fasting and praying. It's for spiritual reasons. It's not because, guys, you want more movie time in the evening. Oh, you've got some gaming time, and you, you, don't, you don't have time to go to bed yet. We're right in the middle of a good game. It's not because, ladies, you've got some really good big projects, and you've put more and more projects on your plate to keep you busy so you can't have that relationship with your husband. Keep your distance and keep yourself busy. That's not the reason here. The reason is for spiritual reasons, and that is with fasting and praying so that, that, that we see here that it doesn't cause one or the other to be tempted by Satan and fall into sexual immorality. Because Paul rejects the fact, the idea that a husband or a wife could be so much more holy in the fact that because there's sexual celibacy in their marriage, that somehow they're more holy or not. You've seen what's happened, I don't have to explain it, where you see people in these religious positions like men who say, I am not going to have a, uh, be married, I'm not going to have a sexual relationship with a woman, I've devoted myself to Christ or in, in, to my religion, and I'm just going to live a life of celibacy and not ever get married and just serve the church. Well, you see how, what wrong within some religions who have done that. And we will see that there are some who are called to celibacy, but if you're not called to celibacy, there's going to be problems called sexual immorality is going to take place in that person's life. So here's, you know, we can see very clearly that Paul says that we are not to deprive or defraud. It's the same word we see in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Deprive, defraud, the same word. When we deny physical affection and sexual intimacy to your spouse, you are cheating them, 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. And that is forbidden in the scripture. Each is to satisfy each person within that marriage in that area. Sex is never to be a weapon of punishment. It is never to be a power play. I'm going to hold this back so he'll buy me this or get me this or go here and do what I want him to do. I'm going to use that against him. Or manipulation within the marriage to get your way, I assure you, you will harm your marriage. There'll be division. There'll be. I, I guarantee you. I've seen and, and, and counseled many, 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 many couples. There'll be division, and it's only a matter of time. Destruction. So, do not deprive. Sexual withholding, withdrawal in marriage, is not only to do with frequency but also with romance. Because Paul says to the husbands, it's not about frequency, guys. It's about romance, too. It says you need to render to your wife the affection due her. Withdrawing from her, holding and clamping down and just being quiet and distancing is not what you're to do. You're not to deprive. 
Because if you do that occasion when you do that, it can cause that temptation to rear up and the one who's being deprived to start looking to be fulfilled in those sexual needs somewhere else. That's how Satan works. So take note here in verse 5. The principles he outlines, the abstinence from sexual intimacy was to be a matter of mutual consent on the part of both the husband and the wife, that they agreed beforehand on a time period at the end of which normal sexual intimacy would be resumed, and then thirdly, refining and refraining was to be enabled to devote each other to be able to fast and pray in a concentrated area, focused on the Lord and in what God is seeking after the Lord and, and, and of what the Lord would want them to do, and whatever that topic may be. But Paul is very clear in verse 6. He says, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Paul makes it very clear here. He says, he says I, 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 make this, I say this as a concession, that yes, God will permit it. Luckily, he permits celibacy within the marriage for a time. But it's only for a short period of time. It, is to, it has to be mutually agreed upon. It has to be for the right reason, with the right motive, the right heart in regards to abstaining sex within the marriage for that period of time. So the principle of this passage is very, very important and very clear because God makes it clear that there's nothing wrong or any, and, and everything is right about sex within the marriage. See, Satan... Loves to divide and conquer, right? He loves to mess with your life and ruin your life. And as a single, he'll do that. The, end of, the Satan will come in as a strategy when you're single and convince you to have sex outside of marriage. He tries every which way to pepper you to make that decision as a single. That's what he tries. He knows he can destroy you if he can get you to have sex out of, out of, of marriage. But he doesn't stop there. Once you get married... He then tries to stop sex within the marriage because he understands that intimacy, that bond, that oneness, if he can get you guys to be divided and not have that sexual relationship, it will cause division and ruin the marriage. So he, Satan doesn't mess or stop messing around once you get married. So many people will say, oh, once I get married, I won't have these problems and these, these temptations and sexual immorality. No, man, I'm telling you, it can still happen even within the marriage if your marriage is not good and not right and going doing according to what God says for you to do. Because a poor sexual relationship within a marriage, problems will come. And we don't want that to happen. That's why Paul is very clear to them. Whatever you're doing there in that church, you think you're doing something outside, according to the will of God, you're not. You must have a close and intimate relationship. In verse, in verse 7, he goes on to another principle. And the principle of God's gifting. He says, for I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God one in this manner and another in that. So what he's saying here, Paul, is that his time in his writing was unmarried at this time. Now, how do we know that? Well, because he puts himself in the position here of unmarried and the widows. He, we, we, we understand that fact that he used to be married 
Why? Because we know that Paul talks about the fact that he was a very uh, devout, observant Jew. And a young Jewish male must, needed to be married by 20. It was, it, was, it was no question. They were to get married. But even more than that, we, and then we can see that in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. But we also see in Acts chapter 26, verse 10, that Paul was part of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, the religious leaders, and you had to be married to be a, a Sanhedrin, part of the Sanhedrin council. So, But what we don't know, because the scriptures are silent, we don't know what happened to his wife. Did his wife leave him when he got saved? And she, he got saved and she said, I don't want anything to do with you. And she left him because of that. Or she died before or after he got saved. Either way, we know that he was. Now he is not. And he can speak to both uh, all matters, can he? He can sit there and say, as, a, as an unmarried man now, as a widow, a widower, I can tell you this is what God, what pleases God, and this is what you, principles you need to know and understand. Each one has been given his own gift from God. That means it doesn't matter if you're single. He's given you a gift to be single. If he has, has that desire, that, that passion to be married, he has to give you a gift to be married. If you force yourself in any one of those categories outside of the will of God, you're not being gifted. It is going to be a struggle and of such a weight and burden on your life that you're not going to be in the will of God. You must find, if you're in the state of singleness, be content where God has you and ask for God's gifting. Because it says here that each one has his own gift from God. Being this manner, the singleness, or that manner, being married. It's a gift from God for you to be able to stay in either one of those states. And then you need to see it as a gift. That it's good. It's right for your life at that point in time. So many times people think the grass is greener on the other side. I'm single, but I, whoa, my life would be so much better if I married. And then you look and turn to your right and to your left and you see a married person. Oh, I wish I was not married. I'd be so much better if I was single. That is someone who's not living a content Christian life. That you don't see it as a gift from God, that, that marriage, or for being single. That you're not being joyful and rejoicing in the things where God has you. It's not about being single. It's, very, it's about your contentment in where God has you. And the fact that it is a gift from him. Oh, how we need to, to embrace what God has given us. But what we do know, and let me make sure I emphasize this point. What I do know and what we do know is that we have not been given the gift of sexual immorality. That is what you have not been given by God. That is just your flesh gone wild. And that is not to happen. Verse 8, in verse 9, he finishes up here. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows... 
It is good for them if they remain even as I am. Now remember, in verse 7, he says, it's, it was good for them to, to, to remain, men to remain as I am myself, meaning he had self-control as a, as a widower, as a widow, or a widower, and he was, he was self-controlled, he was content, he was serving the Lord. It was good. I wish all men were like experiencing what I'm experiencing. But in verse 8 here, he says to the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, meaning remain as a single. It's good for you to remain, remain as a single. Is that where God has you? Just be content until God changes that. Just be content. And I hope you can, it's good. I hope you can stay that way. But if they cannot exercise self-control, if you're a single and you cannot uh, keep your away from sexual immorality and, and just burning in passion, as we will see, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul recommends and very clearly to marry in such cases. Not based on the fact that you're more spiritual if you once you get married, or if you're, you're, you're more spiritual if you can stay single. Oh, have you met someone who's get, been given the gift of singleness, the gift of celibacy? Ooh, he or she must be really spiritual. No. God gave him a gift, and not for their own benefit, but for the purpose of serving the Lord. Because you know as well as I do, if you're single, you're completely focused and ready and movable and fixed, flexible for whatever God has for you to do. Every day. You don't wake up and sit there and say, I have to make sure my kids are bathed and fed or my husband take care of or my wife's take. You don't think of it. You have to think of anybody else. You're completely focused on, Lord, what do you have for me today? Who do I serve? I'm going to serve you. Who do I serve? I have flexibility where I go, how I go. I'm so happy and content where I'm at. Because they don't burn with the passion so greatly. Yes, maybe they have a little heat. I want to get married someday. I may want to, I'd love to have a marriage. I really would like to have kids maybe at some point. But there's no burning. There's a little heat going on. But it's not burning with passion. Be content. God, Paul says here, it is good that you just remain in the state that you're at. Don't keep looking, thinking it's greener somewhere else, better some other state. But if you can't exercise self-control, do not keep and force yourself to be stay in the single state. You should be married because it's only a matter of time you would give into sexual immorality. And that does not please God at all. Not at all. It's better to marry than to burn the, with the passion. Now, some people will sit there and say, well, what is he saying here? Is he against marriage? No, that's why Paul kind of goes back and forth. He talks a little about singleness, and that's good. And marriage, it's good. So that no one can sit there and say, either state is bad. It's not that way. God, Paul understood this. He was married. He was also not married now. And he understands it's good that, in, in that state as well. He even told his protege, Timothy, he says that forbidding to marry was a doctrine of demons, 1 Timothy 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So we know that he's not teaching. He certainly taught someone else to make sure he wasn't teaching that if you're going to be in the ministry, you cannot be married. 
he says that clearly that's a doctrine of demons. Don't touch it. It's not of God. Paul's not speaking about what we might consider normal sexual temptation. He's talking about making sure you understand when you are burning with a passion to be married, you need to be with that woman or with that man, that sex, the opposite sex, that you just ask the Lord to bring you that godly woman, that godly man, and that you will stay pure, stay patient, and wait because he's going to give you the gift of singleness, bring you into that celibacy until that time he brings the, that person to you. You must trust by faith that God can and will do that. It's by faith, not by sight. And certainly not by feelings. Because <laughs> your feelings can really take control over you. And you think it, it has to happen today. And then you take things in your own hands and you can really mess it up. Because what happens is someone who t has that such control and wants to control that part of their life. It's really just lust and sexual sin that they're dealing with. And so many times I hear them say that, oh, man, I know I have lust. I know I have sexual sin here in my life. If I was just married, it would all go away. Let me assure you, my brothers and sisters, it doesn't just go away. Your heart must be changed. It has to be. It's got <laughs> to be fixed. You just got to surrender your life, that part of your life, to, to all aspects of your life, to God, and allow him to change. Because if you have a problem with pornography, you will have a problem with pornography in your marriage. If you have a problem looking at women, you're going to have a problem looking at women when you get married. You must get that dealt with. And God is going to help you if you will just surrender it all. It is in my experience as a pastor that when a husband and wife are yielded to the Lord... And when they seek to please each other in all aspects in that marriage relationship, the marriage will be so satisfying on both sides that neither partner would even think of looking elsewhere to be fulfilled in that marriage. They would not go outside the marriage. They wouldn't even cross their minds because they are being satisfied by each other. That is how God designed marriage in any other way, is not right. God is right all the time, and you are not. So that is as simple as you can get it, that Paul is getting back to the Corinthian church today. Be content. Be in the state that God has you. Stay pure. In a marriage, make sure you have that healthy sexual relationship to keep that unity to keep Satan out of the marriage in that area and then be content in the state that he has you and to live for him to please him. Because we want to please God, do we not? In our marriage, in our single state, we must want to please God. That is the principles of marriage and celibacy.